Thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Gregory Hargreaves, Assistant Director of the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. Now, you know, during these history hangouts, we like to bring you some of the great research being done by folks using the historical collections at the Hagley Library, especially scholars who have received support in the form of research grants and fellowships of different kinds from the Hagley Center. One such scholar joins me today. Evan Brown is a PhD candidate at Columbia University. Evan, thanks for speaking with me today. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Let's start by painting with broad strokes, so to speak. What is it you're researching and writing about? Well, uh, my research is uh, interested in basically the broad social and economic transformations that play out in uh, North American professional baseball uh, over the sort of middle of the 20th century, though, so from from after the Second World War into sort of the 1960s. And the reason I find this interesting is because these um, sort of uh, changes that happen through baseball both set the pattern for the sort of broader kind of sports industry that um, that we come to know today. And also, I think, reflect a lot of the other sort of um, questions and uh, historical debates that are playing out in this post-war period more generally, particularly as relates to sort of uh, the relationship of labor and business and sort of the new uh, kind of entertainment and cultural geography of the United States. Hmm. What attracted to you this to the subject? Well, I mean... I always, uh, you know, grew up playing sports, following sports, right? And that uh, that can take you a long way in terms of sort of figuring out the world and your place in it and, uh, you know, meeting lots of different people. And um, it was definitely the way that I sort of came to understand sort of society more generally. Mm-hmm. And I think like a lot of people, I, uh, you know, got interested into the in the history of baseball through this sort of you know, possibly its most famous historical narrative, which is uh, of its role in uh, racial desegregation, connections to the civil rights movement, things like that. Um, and as I started um, looking into this as, as a question of research, um, it took me in slightly unexpected directions because it really became clear that baseball was a very international phenomena in in this period and that um the uh following the movements of players got very quickly outside the sort of um mental frame that i think most people uh consider baseball today um so to to put it um in other words right one of the things that um for for people who are fans of baseball or other sports might be familiar with this this appeal of sort of timeless timeless right Mm -hmm. this uh narrative that you know especially um with with teams that have been around for you know hundreds of years there's the sense that the game is always the same and it's always been like this and that familiarity is very nice because it can get you access into historical um events that uh you, you feel like you have a chance of understanding and then you realize very quickly that things um were were a lot different and were changing all the time and could have gone um, in other directions. And so what that brought me to, in addition to the international geography, 
was a really renewed focus on the sort of uh, the labor question in baseball and in sports more broadly and the world of kind of business practices first as how these business practices uh, intersected with the processes of racial desegregation. Secondly, how they uh, sort of shaped the um, international geography of, of baseball that we that we see today, right? Where um, unlike, for example, soccer in Europe, where you would have sort of a variety of um, strong national leagues, some of which with more money and resources than others, but a sort of truly international competition, you have more of a pyramid structure with uh, particular leagues in the United States at the top. And the third piece um, being really, again, tracking how people and information are moving throughout this world in a way that requires uh, both uh, expansive and innovative management practices, um, but is also uh, fueled by these sort of efforts of um, players, their families, and other sort of workers in athletic industries to try to sort of carve out a, a living for themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, I think most listeners will be familiar with the attraction of um, uh, Caribbean players, baseball players to the United States market. Could you perhaps elaborate on this uh, geography of baseball in your period? Of course. So, yes, yeah, something that we see today, right, is is certainly the uh, major influence of uh, uh, players and fans, especially from the Dominican Republic, from Puerto Rico, um, and increasingly from Japan and Korea. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, also through television, right, we can we can enjoy this, um, you know, the recent World Baseball Classic or, you know, up, uh, you know, up uh, here in New York where I live, you go down to the park and you really see baseball as the international game that it is, right? Um, The interesting thing about the 1940s, 1950s is that the relationship between the uh, national leagues in Puerto Rico, in Cuba, in Mexico, um, and uh, other places as well, Panama, Venezuela, the relationship between those leagues and uh, what we now know today as Major League Baseball is not strictly set or strictly hierarchical yet. Hmm. And this is because at the time, baseball for uh, the great majority of players is not actually full-time year-round employment in the sense of just because you play for a team in what we now call Major League Baseball, doesn't mean they pay you year round and doesn't mean that is enough to make a living year round. And in these Caribbean leagues, for the most part, they play in the winter. Mm-hmm. So this creates a sort of seasonal pattern of employment where uh, players, whether they're from the United States or from the Caribbean, will play for one team in the summer and then maybe go elsewhere in the winter to to make a few more dollars to, to, uh, to work on their game. Right. And, um, and also for some of them, it really is also an adventure, right? They bring their families, they they have maybe better weather than where they're from, right? And uh, and for obviously players from these areas, it's you know a chance to to play sort of at home or at least in a environment maybe where there's a more familiar language or culture. And so this is a really integral part of the uh, you know seasonal rhythms of baseball in this time period. 
Now, over the course of the 1940s and 50s, this becomes increasingly uh, systematic and um, regulated by the uh, the Major League Baseball, which in this period is not called Major League Baseball. That's another question. But the uh, what we know as the American and National Leagues, um, the, the teams that most listeners would be familiar with, uh, basically sign uh, contracts that grant them a degree of control over the operations of these winter leagues in exchange for access to uh, players, essentially. Mm -hmm. And this uh, push for control is a result of um, big conflicts, particularly in the 1940s, in which players were using these leagues and also um, particularly a league in Mexico that played in the summer as uh, competition and leverage in salary negotiation, right? As a as another option um, that they were that was um, creating a situation where teams would have to uh, essentially pay pay them more because they were competing for their services. Mm -hmm. And does this contract process begin to build that uh, pyramidal hierarchy that um, you were describing earlier? Yes, because it starts to place a sort of set of procedures through which the primary employer of players who would, you know, move throughout this circuit becomes the team based in the United States. And there are basically uh, limits on how many players will go. There are... Um, procedures in place where requests can be approved or denied. And this is both taking the question a little out of the hands of the Caribbean teams who are now sort of working through the leagues to request players rather than approaching the players directly. Mm. Um, but it also takes it a little more out of the hands of the players who now can't say, oh, well, you know, Last year I was in Panama and I liked it there. And so I'd prefer to go back there, right? They might get assigned uh, somewhere else. Hmm. And this also, um, you know, the thing that makes it uh, radically different today is also that now the, the players are really considered to be um, uh, year round, their sort of obligation to their primary team is, and the, uh, is, is such that they um, the teams are very reluctant to grant permission um, because of the risk of injury and things like that. Um, and also because the players um, have earned enough money that they're not um, seeking out this kind of employment as much. Although we still see this, for example, in, uh, in the WNBA and women's basketball, right? This practice of in what's the off season in the United States, arranging as a player or a group of players uh, a second contract somewhere else that plays a different league season in order to create a sort of year-round uh, living in, in professional sports. Mm. That's very interesting. Um, what other changes occurred during this mid-20th century period that you're looking at? Well, there's a lot more you know, you can go way into the details if you're interested in sort of labor and management. There's a lot more changes that really happen sort of at the nitty gritty level there. But I think what people maybe would be more um, familiar with generally 
would be uh, the uh, expansion and uh, relocation of major league teams uh, mm -hmm. from the uh, Northeast and Midwest uh, into the West Coast, the Sun Belt. Um, so for for to, for people who may not be familiar, before the 1950s, all of the top professional baseball teams are located essentially um, east of St. Louis and north of Washington, D.C., right? And there are, you know, three teams in New York, uh, two teams in Boston, two teams in Philadelphia. It's really uh, concentrated in a way that reflects the sort of uh, industrial geography of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Mm -hmm. And so as there's a major population shift towards California, towards the Sun Belt, um, there's increasing interest in having the geography of top-level professional baseball um, shift to match. And that's a really uh, dramatic process, not only sort of, um, you know, in, in cultural terms, because of what it involves with people's attachment with fans, but in insofar as it involves uh, uh, urban um uh, projects of urban development, right? Resources for stadiums um, that are, are reshaping landscapes and uh, also really a change in what it means to actually attend a, a baseball game um, based on where the stadium is located and uh, the neighborhood that it's in and its relationship to the city. Mm. The other really major change in this time period, the one that is uh, you know fundamental to how I think people engage in sports today is the rise of um, television broadcasting mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. and this is something that uh, transforms the business model from uh, where the primary source of revenue is someone has to buy a ticket and show up at the ballpark to one in which there are um, basically set uh, agreements that uh, bring in the uh, established amount of revenue for a certain amount of games placed on different television networks where advertising really uh, takes off beyond sort of uh, billboards at the ballpark and where you get, you know, the situation like today where you have um, ESPN and cable networks and teams operating their own television networks and um, Major League Baseball having its own streaming service, right? Something that really uh, flips the economics uh, of the sport in a, in a new direction. Hmm. When do baseball players unionize? So that happens in 1966 officially. But one of the most interesting things to me about this period of the 40s and 50s is the um, intensity of uh, labor agitation sort of right below the surface, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the, uh, the story of baseball's unionization um, in the in nineteen in the nineteen sixties, the first strikes um, as you go late sixties, early seventies, and the battles for free agency um, in the seventies, right, are really uh, transformative to the sports uh, labor relations. And um, there's uh, really uh, this, uh, I think, very useful and interesting um, scholarship and popular literature on the sort of period of uh, early days of a formal union. Um, but stretching all the way back actually to 1946, mm -hmm. you know, this, the, the 1966 um, uh, um, 
establishment of a union with a contract and and the sort of uh, increasing militancy there in the formal setting was not the first attempt to unionize players. And it was not the only way that players, um, you know, tried to exert a degree of control over their workplace. Mm -hmm. So in 1946, two things happened that uh, set off a sort of crisis situation around labor and baseball. One is that uh, a, um, a series of uh, players do get involved in a sort of formal unionization effort where there is a lawyer going around to different teams trying to get um, votes before the National Labor Relations Board, right? This is 1946, where there's a post-war strike wave, you know, across the United States, right? And uh, a time of advances for labor more generally um, before the passage of Taft-Hartley in 1947. And so this formal uh, unionization effort um, comes quite close in some respect, um, but does not uh, does not break through sort of across the industry. Hmm. Um, but the other thing that happens is in 1946, about 25 players from the, um, at that time, still uh, entirely white um, major leagues, they leave their teams and go to play in Mexico. Because in Mexico, there is a uh, president of the league named Jorge Pascal, who basically has since the 1930s, really, the late 30s, early 40s, realized that he can uh, really bring up the quality of the Mexican League by signing um, Black players from the United States and from Cuba who are racially excluded from playing in the, in the uh, you know, most lucrative leagues in the United States. And so he brings them over. And this is a really important development, both in the racial desegregation of baseball, but also he gives them a, a better deal, right, than they're getting elsewhere. And he decides to also now expand this project to these white players on these major league teams, right, the, the biggest um, famous names. And he succeeds in drawing a groups of players who are dissatisfied um, to Mexico. Now, this is a real sort of, uh, you know, all hands on deck moment for management as far as the structure of baseball labor really relies on something called the reserve clause or the, the reserve system, which is essentially enforced both on the players and between teams that are parties to this agreement. And what this means is that once a player is signed as an 18, 19 year old, right? The team that has signed them has the contractual rights to that player essentially forever, right? Mm -hmm. Because both because of the contractual obligation that it creates to the player, but also because all of the other teams that are sort of within this system have agreed not to recruit players from other teams. Mexico, Jorge Pascal, stepping outside this system, recruits these players away. And this means that the sort of um, open competition for wages, right, is a really dramatic, um, both uh, for the players who go, a, a brief but rapid increase in their wages, 
um, but also a real threat to the kind of uh, established patterns of labor recruitment and salary negotiation. Mm. And so what happens as a result of this, um, the players who go get uh, suspended for, for five years, um, which affects them quite severely. However, in 1947, the owners agree to um, a minimum salary for the first time. They agree to other uh, to meet with player representatives, um, and they um, also they offer uh, the players weren't given meal money or expenses money for spring training at this time, hmm. and so they're given money for this for the first time, and it's called Murphy money, which is the name of the lawyer who had tried to um unionize uh players but the 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 mexican situation um although they don't get pascal money right is is also a really key influence both in the players actually gaining something um in terms of labor conditions but also in as we discussed before this change of the relationship between the leagues right because this can't sort of be allowed to happen again there's two other consequences of this that are i think important to mention one is that the players who are suspended turn this into a legal question, right? And there are court cases that go first almost to the Supreme Court and then all the way to the Supreme Court that, um, you know, 20 years before the, the famous Curb Flood free agency case actually um, come very close to sort of uh, legally overturning uh the, the labor regime in baseball. Um, at the same time, Congress does an extensive investigation of baseball on monopoly grounds. Mm -hmm. And this is not only related to the labor relations of the players, but also to what's been mentioned before as far as um, the expansion of baseball into different territories. Um, because for example, congressional representatives from California are very eager to, to question baseball about, you know, what, what, uh, what relationship it will have to, to, to Los Angeles, to San Francisco, because, you know, it's good political points to say, you know, we, we want to, we want a better baseball team. Right. Um, and also because of the, the role of television, right. So the department of justice is actually, uh, investigating sort of the radio and television arrangements that baseball teams are coming up with. And so this legal question, um, really political question, um, carries out from the players' initial conflict through the 1950s. And um, one important marker for sort of that comes out of that is in 1961, Congress passes a bill granting uh, sports leagues and antitrust exemption as far as it concerns negotiating television contracts on a national basis, which gives them the leverage that basically each time the contracts are renegotiated, uh, they're able to pull in more and more and more revenue because they're not uh, negotiating against each other or um, they're able to coordinate more effectively. Now, one thing I will say about the players is they're not letting this all go by without keeping an eye on it themselves. And in the um, in that 1947 uh, sort of settlement of that uh, conflict with the Mexican League, 
the players also get their foot in the door for a pension plan, which is something they're really interested in. More, more even perhaps than 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 having a union is, is having a pension, right? And this is again, right? Pensions are are something that you know through unions, workers you know across the country are 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 winning at this time, and the the players are sort of reflecting this, saying, "Well, a pension you know makes sense," and it, it's especially important for professional athletes because of the uh, relatively short uh, career that we're talking about here, and of course also the risk of injury, things of that nature. And because, again, these players, if they're being signed to play professional baseball at the age of 18, 19, they're not necessarily um, getting higher education or other sorts of job training. So they're really invested in the pension. And one thing that they manage to get from the owners is a commitment that pension funding will be linked to broadcasting revenue Hmm. from the All-Star Game and the World Series. Now... In 1947, broadcast revenue from the All-Star Game in the World Series is okay. Radio, there's a bit, there's a bit of money there, but it's it's not a huge uh, financial commitment. But from 1947 onwards, as television revenue skyrockets, this becomes a huge point of tension because the players say, "Well, we've established this claim to our share of." broadcasting revenue and if it's going up it's going up that's that's for the pension yeah um and uh as far as ownership this is uh you know this this sort of um little uh this uh what they said oh we'll we'll give the players their their little share of revenue has now become this big uh you know fundamental part of the business right Hmm. so that seed that's planted in 1947 is a real uh, point of mobilization for players throughout the 50s that contributes to uh, the level of organization they're able to attain in the 60s and in the formal process of unionization and later collective bargaining. Hmm. I'm wondering what sources in the Hagley collections did you dig into to help you uncover some of the story? Well, so ha- Hagley has a really useful and not unique but hard to come by uh type of source which is that it has the papers um of the philadelphia phillies which is one of the teams in the uh, major league baseball right um from about 1943 1944 into the 1970s and this is because uh bob carpenter who owns the team at the time. Um, these are these are his papers, right? And they're not comprehensive in the sense of sort of, uh, you know, day in, day out, you know, throughout these years, right? But what they do have because of this vantage point of the sort of kind of board of directors of one team is little interactions with almost every part of this kind of big picture that mm-hmm. I've I've been describing at at perhaps too much length, right? Which is that, you know, if if Philadelphia is negotiating a television contract, right, there is there's correspondence about that with or correspondence with other teams arguing about who whose uh whose radio station is allowed to to cover a certain game, right? If there is a um, you know, 
not every salary negotiation with players, right? But sometimes, right, a player uh, with, you know, they take special attention negotiating someone's contract and and that appears, right? Um, as, the, as the team attends the league meetings, the issues that are being debated in the league meetings filter back into the team's papers. There's um, also, there are financial documents where you can essentially follow, right, where 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 broadcast revenue is going, where um, other sorts of investments in terms of where the team's resources are being allocated are going. And to that point, one of the largest um, both allocation of resources um, in terms of the team and also um, aspects of this collection at Hagley that um, can make use of is the what um, at least in the Philadelphia organization they're calling team replacement, um, which might might be more broadly considered uh, scouting labor recruitment, right? Which mm-hmm. is the process of okay, how do you go out in the world and come back with competent baseball players, right? <laughs> Especially talking about this big geography now that's happening. Um, and how you do that is essentially you have a, a scouting department where it's people's jobs to uh, have certain geographic expertise or have certain, uh, you know, maybe connections at, at high schools or universities or other sorts of networks. And you have to um, basically coordinate this apparatus, use it to generate information and uh, base decisions off of that. Um, and this aspect is really interesting because it, it's expensive. It's also how you get a sort of competent baseball team. And again, talking about the way that the, the labor structure works, right? When a player is, you know, 18, 19, 20, this is their only time that they're on the open market, right? If another team signs this player, that's pretty much it, unless the player is traded or released later on. So there's this one very sort of high leverage moment in which the team is able to exercise a sort of um, control and labor recruitment, right? Of, of trying mm-hmm. to uh, get what it wants from a labor perspective. Now, this is also the one moment where the players have a bit of negotiating power, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're a very... Um, you know, if you're a star high school baseball player um, and the teams are coming to you, there is this moment where you as the baseball player and also oftentimes, at least in the sources, you see, you know, mom and dad, right, weighing in um, and having to sign the contract for them in some cases because they're very young, um, where there is negotiating and this creates uh, an environment of players being given bonuses, right? Mm. This is before this sort of amateur draft, which is instituted in in 1965. Hmm. So scouts are being invested in to try to find these players. And then when these players are identified, they're being given bonuses that are much larger than the sort of otherwise typical pay structure. Hmm. So this creates a big incentive to sort of get these decisions right. And this is where... um, the, the Philadelphia Phillies collection at Hagley has some really interesting material because of the efforts that the team is making to get this right are going in all sorts of directions, right? Firstly, there's the effort of 
you have sort of traditional baseball scouts who, you know, this is sort of where the, the famous, you know, book and movie Moneyball, right? You have traditional baseball scouts who are going and seeing people visually or talking to their friends and making recommendations on that basis. And in the office, they're trying to systematize this, right? Because how do you compare people's assessments from, you know, California, from North Dakota, from Florida, right? So they're trying to get them to fill out all this paperwork and adopt the sort of, you know, kind of modern business practice. You know, we have to have all of this on file. You, we mm -hmm. have to use a numerical system instead of a letter system, right? There, there's this kind of attempted organization in that sense. Um, but there's also other attempts to really kind of leapfrog the competition. Um, so in the early 1950s, for example, there is a partnership with the University of Delaware that basically uh, researchers at the University of Delaware start conducting kind of annual uh, programs into uh, high performance in athletics, right? Hmm. And reporting these results to the Phillies saying, well, we're, we're trying all sorts of experiments, right? And this stuff is both sort of wonky in that kind of 1950s atomic age sort of way, right? That when you look back on old technology that didn't pan out, Mm -hmm. um, but in other ways, it actually really reflects things that now are very cutting edge in terms of what's possible um, with sports, right? So they are strapping electrical sensors to bats, right, to try to measure um, things that today are very important, like bat speed and launch angle and all these all these things that you see on a baseball broadcast, right? Um, in you know, in 1951, 1952, they're having problems like, well, the sensor falls off the bat and we can't really get good data. So it's, it's not a huge success, but they're really thinking in this direction. Again, mm -hmm. an investment justified because of the kind of uh, stakes of investing in these players. Mm -hmm. They're also doing things that are really um, trying to quantify and scrutinize the labor that players are doing as baseball players, right? Mm -hmm. So they are you know, collecting the, the whole catalog of, of baseball statistics that, that fans of sports will be familiar with. Um, but they're also trying to, you know, uh, measure their eyeballs, right? With devices that are supposed to provide more information about sort of, um, sort of biomechanical information, right? Mm -hmm. About uh, how they can, um, you know, who can hit a baseball, not based on who's actually hitting the baseballs, but on sort of the speed of their eye movements, right? Mm. Things like that. And so this is really, um, you know, I don't think it produces any specific uh, breakthroughs on the baseball field, but it's a really uh, fascinating, useful historical case of how the uh, labor market dynamics of the sport intersect with kind of what is possible from a sort of scientific and managerial perspective and uh you know also i think speak to a sort of misperception that people sometimes have about baseball which is that it's very um that it again things have always been traditional mm -hmm. things have always been sort of in the classic you know um you know conservative sense it's not to say that baseball is not uh, full of people who are trying to do things the way it's always been done, but that um, there's all these attempts at um, what a uh, modern reader or viewer might might be surprised by. Mm -hmm. Well, what a rich set of sources and what an interesting project. Evan, thank you for taking the time to share with me today. 
thank you. It was it was really a pleasure to uh, to to do the research at Hagley, and then of course to, to talk about it is uh, even better. Well, you're welcome. And for the audience, if you would like more Hagley History Hangouts, more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, join us online. You can visit hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G. Don't be a stranger. <laughs>